This week on Life and Faith. You probably have heard that icebergs are 80% of their masses underwater. And as it turns out, ocean liners like cruise liners are 80% of the structure is above the water. And what social media has done is turn all of us from icebergs into ocean liners, where most of our life is on display. I'm not very interested in ordinary conversations. We are all in this together, rather than on our own. I was really scared that I was going to die. We had a worldview that didn't really address the various intellectual questions we had. Welcome back to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart, and I'm here with Justine Toe and Natasha Moore. Hello. Hey, good to be back. And we're back after a summer break for our first episode of 2024. Decent break, you guys? COVID. <laughs> but also a oh, lot of Oh, no. Rest. Yeah. It wasn't Aww. near as bad as the first time. Okay, well, I had a better holiday than Justine. <laughs> you, Simon? <laughs> yeah, good deal. Yeah, I did too. Fairly standard for me. A lot of beach, um, rest, afternoon sleeps, cricket. It was mm-hmm. great. And good. partly because it's the start of the new year and partly because February 4th, marked 20 years since Mark Zuckerberg sat in his Harvard dorm room and launched the site that initially was known as The Facebook. (laughs) We thought we'd dedicate this episode to social media, the place it has in our lives, for better or worse, 20 years on. Now, you guys know that I think definitely worse, but we'll get to that uh, (laughs) as we go. Now, Natasha, your feelings about this? I have more mixed feelings about it. I definitely see some negatives and certainly the social media landscape has changed, I would say pretty dramatically, even in the last few years since COVID. Um, But I was surprised to read this week that Facebook still has, this is according to their most recent investor report, just over 3 billion active users. Mm. You know, you hear a lot of talk about the decline of Facebook and how young people just aren't on there and people leaving it in droves. But apparently around 2 billion people visit Facebook every day. That's a quarter of the world's population. So that's still kind of mind-boggling, right? Sure is. Yeah. Well, in this conversation, we want to do a few things. We want to reflect on together our own relationships, dysfunctional, Simon, (laughs) (laughs) or otherwise, with social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and we want to consider what these platforms add to our lives and everything they take from us. We're going to hear a few different voices, including Andy Crouch, one of our favorites. Um, He's one of the wisest heads out there when it comes to tech and living humanly with it. Uh, And we'll also consider the option of quitting socials altogether, just cold turkey. Yep, that might be good advice, but we'll also explore some of the spiritual implications of our online lives. And Justine may or may not make the case that the internet is made of demons. You look very dubious, Simon. Maybe not. Maybe. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) And we might even make a few resolutions for the year ahead in terms of our social media. But starting off here, Natasha, Justine, do you remember when you first join Facebook on why you did that? Mm, I do. I remember it well because I was kind of a holdout. Um, I mean, I'm not really by personality an earlier adopter anyway of things, (laughs) but I remember like about 2007, all my friends were on Facebook and I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And so people would like tell me things 
um, that I was missing out on because I wasn't on Facebook. And then in 2008, I was moving to the UK Mm. to do a PhD. And I was like, okay, I need to join Facebook now so that I can keep in touch with people. Maybe that was a a bit of a pretext. Maybe I was also giving into pressure and I don't know, wanting to like show off about my overseas adventures (laughs) online as well. Mm -hmm. Our motives are always mixed, right? No, that's right. I remember joining because it removed the awkwardness of in-person social interactions when you didn't really know someone. And I was quite a shy person. So there's, because the way that online interaction goes, you never necessarily have to be in the presence, the physical presence of another person. Suddenly all the awkwardness and all the stuff melts away and you have more, some would say license, some would say opportunity to kind of be a little bit more confident or outgoing or something because you don't have to deal with the other person or abusive. (laughs) I was never abusive, but I know what you mean. Yeah, I thought you meant being able to stalk people in advance or afterwards made in-person interaction easier. (laughs) Oh, well, actually, that does track with me and Vaughn. (laughs) (laughs) But that's another story. So we've all stayed on Facebook, more or less. What What are we all on now? Are we more on Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it reflects our <laughs> demographic age group, but none of yeah, us are yeah. on TikTok. No, totally. But what I want to know as well is what is the status of the group chat, right? Like on WhatsApp or Messenger or Viber or any one of those signal. Is this social media? Because technically, I reckon we would say it's it's not quite social media in the way that Facebook uh, and Twitter but, but is. Even it if- is in the social, isn't it? Because you get in these group things and it's media and it is used for social interaction and I do use it for that I, I use WhatsApp a bit what do you I feel like we use WhatsApp and other kind of group messages the way that we originally used and meant to use things like Facebook like yeah. now social media is way more public than it was mm. at first it was initially just people you knew offline you connected with them online and so you had these kind of group chats about like what you were listening to or watching or whatever whereas now we don't use social media for those things. So even things like planning events, like recently I had, you know, a birthday thing and I would normally make a Facebook event and I did, but it was not that effective because Facebook is not very user-friendly on that kind of thing anymore. They give me all these notifications about things I don't care about, but they don't notify me when people are RSVPing to my event. No. Um, and then I had to figure out who's not really using Facebook anymore and hasn't <laughs> seen it and message them separately. <laughs> so I feel like we're doing that kind of thing through WhatsApp now. And even the kind of things where you're, you know, keeping up with friends who you don't see that much or your family chat or who's listening to this podcast, let's have a debrief about it. Those kinds of private apps where, you know, you're not going to get tarred and feathered for your opinions. (laughs) A loose Mm. comment. Social media is now a much more passive experience, Mm. usually. Therefore, also very ephemeral. You know, an an article that I think we've talked about before by uh, a guy called Freddie DeBoer, like he talks about it as like hashtag content that is by design totally existentially disposable like there aren't things that you come back to you know in one year two year three years from now Mm. like some dog video or whatever that oh that really stands the test of time (laughs) (laughs) yeah the way you do with a movie with a novel with a piece of art he goes you know these videos are designed to be thrown away they can't hurt you but they can't move you they'll never challenge you they'll never inspire you all they're meant to do is help you pass the seconds that make up your life a finite and precious resource, 
which I was horrified to read. I was like, that's right. So many seconds of my life. <laughs> How about we increase the horror? We're going to lean into it a bit more right now. I read mm. Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And in it, he meets Aza Raskin, who's the guy who invented Infinite Scroll. You know, you used to have to get to the bottom of the page and then decide if you wanted to go to page two or page three. But now you can just scroll infinitely down and there's more content. And he one day started to feel a prick of the conscience as to how much time people were spending on Infinite Scroll. Because he estimated that conservatively, people would spend up to 50% more time on that platform as a result of this functionality. And so he worked out that if billions of people were accessing the internet uh, and platforms like this every day, right, the two billion on Facebook, then what you ended up with was a combined total of 200,000 entire human lifetimes. I spent every day scrolling. Oh my gosh. I feel like we're sounding a bit Doom and gloom. Mm. And, <laughs> negative. And a bit old. So we, we're getting <laughs> into a pretty strong <laughs> negatives here. So before we really let loose on our concerns about social media, what are the positives? What, if anything, do these platforms add to our lives? One that I want to volunteer to start with is just keeping track of people, maintaining relationships with people. We had a thing recently where uh, my wife saw a photograph from a friend of ours son really he was an adult son who's traveling in sydney we didn't know he was traveling he's from america and she saw this and messaged him and said are you around and, and we connected with him he came over for dinner reconnected a bit with him and, and his mum and dad in america so it was great it was a, mm. it wouldn't have happened without that so that was a good example it brought people together it really did in yeah. this case mm. yeah things. i mean technically <laughs> um my husband and i would probably never have got together if we hadn't been facebook friends from like 10 years earlier and you know i don't love mm. owing that to mark zuckerberg <laughs> but <laughs> i think as well like i get genuine joy from like the memes, the jokes, like the, yeah, you know, good, the disposable videos that I was just talking about. Right. Like there's something really satisfying about having access to that and being able to then share that with the person who you're like, this person would so get this and love this. There was a thing I saw recently on Twitter, I think, um, X, uh, by Nathan Pyle, the Strange Planet cartoon guy, if you're familiar with familiar. Um, his, his comics. But um, he was like, oh, my wife and I have agreed that, you know, we send memes to each other all day, but then when it's dinner time, we put down our phones and we describe memes to each other. <laughs> and I was like, kind of identify with that, <laughs> that there's, you know, something fun about sharing those jokes and just people being clever. I did read the other day as well that, um, you know, after these really destructive floods in Lismore in northern New South Wales, that um, a report has been prepared trying to, like, make some sense of what happened and how they can do things differently in future. And the WhatsApp groups and the Facebook groups were really singled out as vital um, information sources. A lot of those local papers and news sources had shut down. So these, in some cases, became the lifeline for the people. Yeah, that's right. And so rich with local info, like, so avoid that area or use this back road to get out of there. But even in the aftermath and the, the recovery period, just getting the word out about um, this is where help is and if you need X, go here. Um, and just trying to connect and provide that practical support for people. Like it was mm. unparalleled, really. Yeah. No, it can so, definitely work yeah, well Yeah, there's a cases. really good upside. Another maybe is to say that we're keeping up with what's going on in the world, the cultural conversations, that sort of thing. I used to find 
Twitter useful for things like book recommendations mm. and films and whatever. Yeah. Now it's mostly ads. Mm. My two favourite um, people I've discovered is all through YouTube, which yeah. for me that's surprising because normally it would be a more established news outlet, let's say, or you know someone whose byline has appeared in the New York Times or the Atlantic or something. But no, I found them through YouTube. Yeah. Surprising. Okay, so what about the negatives? We could talk about these all day, I guess, but let's just list a few off. You can Mm. kick us off, Natasha. Yeah, I mean, I suppose some of them have come up already, haven't they? But um, certainly we don't always get the connection we're looking for. Sometimes social media can make us feel more lonely or separate from other people instead. Yeah, I think that. I think we can also sometimes in our interactions with people forget about the that there's an actual person on the other side of this typing Mm. and argument that we might be having. Yes. And I think that's where online shaming really comes into its own, right? (laughs) Um, But yeah, what else? Tribalism, polarization, a mob mentality. Mm. Bit ugly, really. Rage. Yeah. Mm. Trolling encourages some of our worst impulses. Yeah. And makes us feel bad about ourselves, (laughs) honestly. Yeah. Comparing our insides to other people's curated Mm. outsides. Yeah, the curated thing is a, is a big problem, I think, because there's a natural impulse. It's like you want to have people around for a slide knife back in the 70s, but now it's like you want to show all your great holiday snaps, but it does leave the people who aren't getting the trip to Fiji or whatever feeling you know, yeah, perhaps inadequate or at least a yeah. bitter and twisted, whatever it might be. <laughs> also, um, I can't concentrate anymore. Anyone else? No, that's it. Mm, attention spans. You know, yep. kids, you see their concentration getting kind of sucked away yeah. from them with this. I've, that's what drives me really mad. Yep. I can't stand it. Yep. Might be the end of democracy. There's always that. <laughs> yeah. Misinformation. Yeah. This is even before we get to the privacy and harvesting data business Mm, as well. mm -hmm. And then also I have to admit I have sometimes worried about being shocked by the amount of private things that people are willing to put on show Mm. on their Instagram account or on their Facebook. I I do find this a bit confronting. It's like private doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I do wonder with this whether there's – maybe even more of a generation gap between, say, us and younger social media users, you know, the sense of what's appropriate and what's helpful to share, helpful for ourselves and helpful for other people. Uh, It's probably worth bringing in a couple of other voices here to help probe this further. First, we're going to cross to CPX's brand manager, uh, the wonderful and social media savvy Claire Potts. Justine spoke with Claire about her thoughts on sharing and solidarity online. There's a girl who I'm following at the moment on um, Instagram and she has this really interesting brand where she's just gone through this awful breakup and she's 28, she's not where she thought she would be in her life and so she's started training to run a marathon. I started following her when she had about 2,000 followers. She now has 20,000 followers and that was only two weeks ago that I started following her. And I think what's really interesting about her is that she's vulnerably kind of sharing a story about her recovering from an awful breakup, her kind of figuring out who she is and what she wants to do with her life now. So she'll get on her Instagram when she's having a really bad night and she's grieving and she's crying and she kind of goes, I'm feeling this right now. I feel really embarrassed about it. Does anybody else feel like this too? And the amount of comments she gets from people going, I thought it was just me I feel really comforted to know that someone else is going through this and is confident to share it. There's an element of solidarity there. 
social is an interesting word in that like social is all about connection right connecting and I think what I feel quite strongly from this particular Instagram account is this deep connection that's being built between this girl and many, many other men and women who have felt this deep sense of post-breakup pain and have tried to kind of get their lives back on track. And that's been a really lonely thing to do. And in a strange way, she's making it not lonely. That's our colleague Claire Potts, who runs CPX's social media, on some of the upside to people sharing more openly online. On the other side of the ledger, here's a cameo from Andy Crouch, who is the author, among other things, of The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Andy wants to encourage us to pay attention to our balance as public-private people. And he has a great analogy for this. You probably have heard that icebergs are, I think it's 80% of their mass is underwater, invisible. You just see the little top of the iceberg. And as it turns out, ocean liners like cruise liners are 80% of the structure is above the water. And what social media has done is turn all of us from icebergs into ocean liners, where most of our life is on display. The problem is, (laughs) in your life, uh, you're going to hit icebergs. You're going to hit real uh, challenges, real pain, real loss, real suffering. And the uh, testimony of maritime history is when an ocean liner meets an iceberg, the the iceberg wins. You actually want to be an iceberg. You want 80% of your life to be hidden, um, not to be public, not to be visible. So I'm a pretty public person in terms of like what my job is, uh, even if I weren't on social media. And, and I've realized I need a whole part of my life that's truly private. Um, this is my life of prayer. This is my life of rest. This is my life of exercise. This is my life of practicing my instrument, uh, the, the musical instruments I play. And then I need a part of my life that I would call personal, which is done with other people, but in person, not done for display, not done for the world to see. And this is my life of friendship, of real friendship, of conversation, of accountability for the things that I care most about. And then, then I need to be very careful about that little 20% part that I show and, and thinking about how, how to be intentional about being truthful, being faithful, having integrity in what I show to the world. But you want 80% of your life to be out of sight because real life comes from a hidden place. You're listening to Life and Faith and Justine and Natasha and I are weighing the costs and benefits of social media 20 years on from the dawn of Facebook. And we'll come back to Andy Crouch's recommendations for how we might be more kind of icebergy people a little later on. But first, having discussed at some length some of the drawbacks of social media use, the obvious question is, should we all just quit? Like actually? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently plenty of people have. I have never seen it take forever. (laughs) But apparently, you know, it's it's an actual genre of kind of post on Facebook, ironically enough. (laughs) The whole thanks for the good times, I'm gone for now. (laughs) Um, So there is that. People do say they're going to quit. And there are a lot of accounts out there of what happens next, what happens when people go offline like this. Um, For example, there was an article in The Guardian last year by a writer in Hobart called Philippa Moore. No relation that I know of. (laughs) Uh, 
she felt like her socials were making her crazy. Yeah. And she made this like just snap decision to step away. And she says, and this is a common thing you read in these articles, you know, within a week, her screen time was down 81%. Um, isn't it great that they measured this for us? And she was like, it wasn't just time that I'd regained. I felt as though I had my brain back. I had the ability to focus, to think clearly and deeply. I had more energy. I was sleeping better. I felt more creative and confident. My fear of missing out had vanished. She felt more relaxed. Um, her Fitbit reported the lowest resting heart rate that she'd had in months. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. So for Philippa Moore um, and for many others, They say that their relationships are stronger after they quit social media. They're more creative and productive. And, you know, for her, she said there had been some downsides, but she'd been 16 months off social media when she wrote the article. And she definitely seems happy with that decision. Could be inspiring, perhaps. Now, Natasha, you spoke to someone else who's made that decision. Yes. So I spoke to Jess Forsyth. Uh, who is a little harder to track down maybe than our usual interviewees, given that she is now off socials. Uh, She is a mum of five who also homeschools and who has recently made the decision to step back from social media altogether. I still have a profile on Facebook and Instagram, but I have basically broken up with it. Uh, I call it an amicable breakup because we're sort of not in a relationship anymore, but it's still there so that if people need to contact me and I could go back to it occasionally and do whatever I need to do, but I'm not looking at it all the time and using it all the time. It's a distant acquaintance. Yes, an awkward friendship. Jess mentions some of the same reasons we've been discussing in this episode already for why social media had become problematic in her life. I found that Social media seems to have a problem with, there's no filter, I guess. In real life, we have some sort of filter that we use when we're talking to people. But I saw some relationships, you know, some of my friends actually break down because of things that were said on social media that, you know, conversations that probably should have been had in real life, that the relationship might have ended differently if that conversation was had in real life versus over social media. Um, And then there was also just the constant scrolling, you know, how much time I was spending on my screen when I could be putting that energy to better use, you know, being present with my kids and doing something good in the world. And then there's other temptations there as well, like constantly comparing yourself to the lives that you see portrayed. And it's just a small slither of someone else's life, but you find yourself comparing yourself to that. It's a very effective marketing tool, but You can also find yourself wanting things that you don't really need and wanting abilities that you don't have and, you know, like, oh, I want to sew this beautiful outfit for my daughter. It's like I don't have these skills. but And I don't have time because I'm always scrolling. (laughs) (laughs) Like other quitters, Jess has noticed a number of benefits in the time since she stepped away from her social media accounts, but one in particular. The important one actually is more time for real connections with people. So I thought of social media was being able to, you know, create those connections and deepen those connections. But I guess they're not real connections at the end of the day. They're sort of pseudo connections. Um, It's nice to put that energy into real life connections and actually catching up with someone over coffee and having a conversation face to face. And one of the good things that came out of it actually was when I let everyone know that I was going to be stepping away from social media, I had a lot of messages, you know, people giving me their numbers and saying, okay, let's catch up in the real world. Jess has also valued having more time freed up for her kids in really deliberate ways. 
So I've started going on dates with them one at a time. Every weekend I'll take one of my kids out for coffee and ask them how life is going and that kind of thing. Um, I guess it's just made me more conscious of what I do and how I spend my time because I was losing a lot of time to social media. And it's sort of not conscious when that happens because you're just stuck in the scrolling and stuck in that cycle, I guess. But having to actually consciously stop and think about what role I wanted to play and consciously stepping away and thinking about how I want to use my time wisely. Is it a permanent breakup? Probably. There's a few things I haven't worked out yet because it is a good marketing tool, as you would know. So in the future, when I want to market our little farm business and that kind of thing, I'm still thinking about how to effectively do that because I know that when I want to find out about a business or a company, I'll go online on their Facebook page or Instagram page and use that to sort of gauge what kind of company they are and what they're selling. Or, you know, I'm one of those people that likes to read the menu before I eat out somewhere or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Better see pictures of their social media page, but trying to work out the logistics of that kind of thing still. But I don't think I'll go back to it for the connecting side of it, like not having conversations and not posting my thoughts and that kind of thing on there because I, I feel much better without it. So I think it's probably a permanent breakup. One of the things that's cropped up throughout our discussion here has been not just the emotional and psychological effects of social media, but the spiritual element to this. Something that Andy Crouch has put together based around the iceberg ocean liner idea, that there needs to be a significant portion of our life or self that's not publicly on display. He has a list of spiritual practices for public leadership that we'll consider in a moment. First, though, we want to take a bit of a dive into some murkier depths to ask a question that you may or may not be asking, but that Justine in particular has been asking for some months now, which is, is the internet actually made of demons? Yeah. I'm, look, I've been wanting to talk about this for a while, and I don't think I'm crazy. I am certainly not the only person who is suspecting this. And I did not come up with this in the first place. This was me, you know, reading other people and going, oh, wow, this is cropping up a lot. They're using the D word, demon, and um, not being kind of like jokey about it. Mm. Um, But let me explain what I mean. You know, when I say the internet is made of demons, I'm encompassing with that the internet itself, but also any networked technology system, like the handheld devices that we are often using to access that. But the emphasis I'm trying to drive home here is that we are um, engaging with a virtual, disembodied, non-physical experience with other people. Does that make sense? So social so media. Social media. Yeah, is. social media mm-hmm. basically is that. Um, and when I say demon, I mean an anti-human, malevolent, supernatural force or Mm. agency or spirit. So do you need to believe in demons in a spiritual realm for this critique to make sense? I think you could even think about the demon in a philosophical sense in the way that I will explain. Mm. Yeah. So Justin, is this part of what you mean when you're using this category of demonic for what we're talking about here is how addictive 
our devices are. Yeah, I think that's the... Sucks you in. Yeah, I think that is the most easily recognisable, presentable symptom that everyone would agree with. But it's also because we're being drawn in, like, what are we being sucked into? We're drawn into some kind of immensely powerful virtual network of some kind that maybe doesn't have human thriving as its ultimate agenda, (laughs) so if I can put it that way. And even trying to take a screen away from a child after they've watched that episode of Bluey or whatever, or the the two episodes or sometimes three (laughs) hours later, right? It's like Gollum in the ring, right? And so I think that even just noticing that kind of effect that this technology or this device has on a person tells us something. And like, we know how that kid is feeling because we feel it too, right? Yeah. And once your kids are a little bit older, I mean, try getting, it's almost impossible to, to get them away from these smartphones, largely because their entire social life is generated through social media. So unless they were to become the teenage equivalent of a monk, mm. they kind of are drawn into this in a way that I, I do find really insidious and frustrating. And even thinking about it, like as an adult, I don't carry a wallet anymore or a credit card. It's all on my phone. Yeah. Um, you carry your ID on your phone. It's like your participation in society is contingent upon you using this device, you being kind of in the network, hooked in at some point. There's also, I mean, the metaphor or the reality of possession seems relevant here that, you know, people say and do things on social Mm -hmm. media as a result of it that they kind of don't recognize themselves in afterwards. They're like, what kind of madness was I caught up in? Yeah, that's right. I mean, do you guys remember Pizzagate a couple of uh, years ago where this guy was so far deep onto 4chan and other murky parts of the internet that he storms a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., convinced that there's like an elite Democrat-run pedophilia ring being operated out of the basement. And the the basement, basement that didn't exist. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So when something like Pizzagate happens, all the sociologists rush in. They say, this is a result of people being in echo chambers, getting lost online into strange corners and not going through established, authorised sources of information, right? And all that makes total sense and I think is true. But what I'm saying is as well that in our disenchanted world where there is no supernatural, we've already um, considered off the table for discussion, the possibility of there being some kind of supernatural agent also at work, maybe even poking people in certain directions and leading them down dark alleys, so to speak. So Paul Kingsnorth, who I've mentioned before, he's an author, but in recent years, he's become a really interesting tech critic. He calls the internet a giant Ouija board, Hmm. which I'm like, you know, you can write that off easily, but you can also think about it. And you're in communication with a disembodied networked intelligence, and that can manipulate your understanding of reality. So Paul argues Mm. as well that plenty of these AI developers are supernaturalists. In one essay, he talks about Kevin Kelly, who's a Silicon Valley guru, who wrote a book called What Technology Wants. And he makes the case, Kevin Kelly, in this book, that technology is actually using us, humans, to manifest itself. And he writes, quote unquote, we have a duty to usher this new intelligence into the world. I mean, you described this before, Justine, in terms of like an anti-human force. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's something dehumanizing about what goes on when we're, you know, super active online. Part of that surely is, 
that all this energy and time and effort and self is poured into something that at the end of the day is kind of about advertising and making money. Yeah. Well, I mean, Andy Crouch, who we've mentioned a couple of times, he says that mammon, which is another word for money, mammon is the controlling spirit of technology. It's about making money and it unwittingly also turns people into the product in a way, right? I think we can see in the more extreme and awful ways that can happen. So child exploitation material literally turns the person into a product. Um, But even like when people's data is just harvested and then sold back to marketing companies, so it can be worked out what will attract us and what we want to buy, etc. But even thinking you're turning the raw material of your life and trying to think about how can I turn this into content. And even like, you know, considering recent discussions here at CPX about being a personal brand. <laughs> it's <laughs> oh kind of like, gosh. it's a bit like, you know, being turning a ourselves into products a little bit. So, you know, I will admit that me trying to have more of a presence on Instagram, it does feel like a bit of a deal with the devil. So yeah, how are you doing there. this, Justine? Yeah, Instagram's <laughs> well, going great. It's got its hooks into me, right? Um, Look, this might be really naive, but I really feel that knowing at a basic level that this technology is not neutral is a really good starting point. If one of the most insidious things about social media is the way we find ourselves acting and kind of living in ways we don't intend, then deciding intentionally how we're going to engage or not on these platforms could be an important first step in sort of resisting the most negative effects of it. So let's think about that. Okay, so this is where Andy Crouch's spiritual practices for public leadership might come in handy. So these are some principles that he shared in uh, 2020 at Comment Magazine, and we'll include the link to that in the show notes. Um, These are principles that he formulated as someone who does a lot of public writing and speaking and him wanting to keep that from destroying him or harming Mm -hmm. others as having a public persona um, can do. He wanted to not be a cruise ship that ends up hitting an iceberg and causing a lot of damage. So, I mean, obviously not everyone is a public person in that sense. We're not all celebrities, but he says that, you know, because of social media and the online self, actually we do all participate in this. We have a curated public self. And so these practices are potentially relevant to all of us. Yeah, so he divides these into private practices, personal practices, and public practices. So private practices like solitude, silence, fasting, exercise, Sabbath, that kind of thing. Personal practices to do with friendship and accountability. And these are obviously with others, but they're not public. And then he has public practices, including how he uses different kinds of media. So I think it's very thoughtful, carefully you know, put together. Are there any of these that jump out at you guys as you think about your own practice? I think the um, the one he lists as solitude is an interesting one. So kind of being alone without interactive devices um, for a certain amount of time each week. Um, this is something I've been trying to do, not in a heap systematic way, but, you know, I've been very, like the last few months, challenged by my propensity to get sucked down a I'm going to call a scroll hole. Um, (laughs) You just emerge from it, blinking into the sunlight, and you're like, where did all that time go? I haven't made rules about it specifically, but I'm trying to just kind of not do it, and particularly on the Sabbath, 
to be having time away from my phone. Like I'm just, I'm just basically like every time I pick it up, I'm like, oh, actually, I'm not doing that today. When he talks about media, he says, I promote others using media at least twice as often as I promote my own work. Please don't run my own Instagram through this filter because it will fail miserably. <laughs> um, with social media and phones themselves kind of promoting this idea that you are the world and the world comes to you, redirecting that to affirm or to lift up other people I think is really good. Sounds like a good call to me. Both of those I can relate to. I think having time each day and mm. each week without your device. So, you know, I think he says an hour a day, a day a week, that kind of thing. I could find myself benefiting yeah. from that. Do you know C.S. Lewis, um, he's got this famous quote where he says that your first job of the day is to push away all the to-do lists, agendas, etc. the things that come rushing at you like wild animals. <laughs> That's what having a smartphone mm. is like. Andy Crouch does this thing where he says he, before he ever touches anything electronic, he gets outside. So mm. it doesn't matter if it's snowing or whatever, he'll go outside to remind himself he's a creature in a creation yeah. and uh, breathe in the air. And, yeah, of the real world. Of the real world. Not necessarily the virtual <laughs> That's world. That's how he does it. So something like that, I think, I can see myself adopting. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, Justine Toe and Natasha Moore. Yes, thanks for listening. I'm going to be posting links to the material that we've talked about today. And as my gift to you, I'm going to limit them to five. If you enjoyed this episode, whether you're a long-time Life and Faith listener or this was your first episode you've listened to, we'd love for you to share it with others. I'm sure you know someone who this episode is relevant to, as for so many of us. And thanks, as always, to our producer, the fully human, Alan Dowthwaite. Next week. What are you going to be abstaining from in this season of Lent? As a person born in Singapore, it's very, very hard for me to want to give this up but I'm going to give up shopping. Uh, okay. You know, Singaporeans and shopping kind of go together. It's almost a uh, part of our DNA. So to give up shopping is going to be a hard task. <laughs>